0: You're listening to a message from Mercy Culture Church, home of Pastor Landon and Heather Schott in Fort Worth, Texas. For more information about Mercy Culture and ways that you can be a part of it, visit mercyculture.com. It's great to be here. I love Mercy Culture and what God is doing here. I feel like we should just respond to the altar call. I mean, they just preached uh, an incredible message that, uh, you know, here's what I love about Landon and Heather. when. When they began Mercy Culture, I remember talking with Landon about what God had put in his heart, is there really is a prophetic mandate and a mantle on their lives. And while you were speaking, Landon and Heather, the Lord just dropped this uh, phrase into my heart, and I want to give it to you. And I was looking at you, and you were talking about what God is mantling you with, and the Lord just spoke these names over me, William and Catherine. And I thought, what's that, William and Catherine? And I was thinking maybe it was royalty for the, for the, the prince and the princess of, of Wales, but it's William and Catherine Booth, who were the founders of the Salvation Army, who were revivalists in England that turned the social uh, disorder of England around in their generation because God had called them to exert authority in the broken places of British culture. And there is a William and Catherine Booth anointing on you, <clears throat> and I wanna just say this. This is, this is the first of about three justice issues that God is about to release you into. One is adoption and abortion. There is going to be economic development and solving the issues of poverty that God is also going to give to you. God says, it's not any accident that I've accelerated the process in five years of what would normally take 20 years, but I've given you a financial and economic advantage and I've surrounded you with economic kingdom builders and there's gonna be a steady stream of finances and creativity and innovation that's gonna flow in this house. So that you're going to be used here and throughout the state and into the nation to develop innovative strategies to solve the problems of poverty. And so just take that. That's a, that's a bonus prophetic word from the Lord tonight. I really believe that uh, that William and Catherine word is a strong word over you guys. What's well, a joy to be here tonight, uh, I want to just introduce myself to you a little bit. My wife Jane and I, we've been married 31 years, and just like Pastor Landon said, we, we started off on an adventure 30, almost 32 years ago as a married couple to serve the Lord in ministry. 28 years ago, the Lord birthed in our hearts, we were 25 years old, to plant a church in Kalamazoo, Michigan. And so we've been serving in that church for 27 years, almost 28 years, and God has been incredibly good to us. And what a privilege it is to stand in front of a room full of leaders. Every time I get to do this, I'm reminded what a privilege it is to speak on behalf of Jesus. And so this this evening, I have a word for this network. I have a word for you as pastors and leaders. And the title of the message is People of His Presence. People of His Presence. I've only shared this message one other time and one other place We have a network of churches, and I believe it was in 2019 the Lord gave me this message to mark our network and our family of churches. And you know, like you do with a lot of sermons, you preach the message on a Sunday and it goes into your files. There are a few messages that God has given to me that when I travel, And I speak into different movements and different churches. The Lord has given me a message that goes beyond a local church and it goes into a movement. This is the first time that God reminded me of this word and he said, I want you to bring that message to the Presence Driven Church Network Conference. And so this message is entitled Presence or People of His Presence. Look with me at Exodus chapter 33. Exodus chapter 33, beginning in verse 14 from the New Living Translation, it says, The Lord replied, I will personally go with you, Moses, and I will give you rest. Everything will be fine for you. Then Moses said, If you don't personally go with us, don't make us leave this place. How will anyone know that you look favorably on me, on me and on your people, if you don't go with us? For your presence among us sets your people and me apart from all the other people on the earth. And the Lord replied to Moses, I will indeed do what you have asked, for I look favorably upon you, and I know you by name. And Moses responded, then show me your glorious presence. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, tonight in this room, we sense your presence and we know you're here with us. But just as Moses knew your presence and spoke to you as a friend does face to face, we look into your eyes that blaze with fire and we ask you, Lord, tonight, would you show us your glorious presence? Lord, would you increase our awareness? And more than anything, Lord, would you mark us as people of your presence that distinguish us from all the other people of the earth, your people in this hour, carriers of your presence marked by your glory, speaking to you face to face. This is what we ask for tonight in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. So in 1996, God called us to plant radiant church and it was based on an encounter that I had with the Lord in 1996. There weren't a lot of books, a lot of conferences, a lot of organizations that were available to teach you how to plant a church. I'd been on staff at a very large church in Grand Rapids, was a young adults pastor, was teaching in Bible college, and I knew that God had marked me and set me apart to lead a church and to do apostolic ministry, but I thought that that would be years and years in advance. And one particular day, I was driving in my 1991 Pontiac Grand Am with a broken muffler, And I emphasize that because, you know, when you're driving a car that has a broken muffler, that's all you hear. But as I was driving down the highway and I was seeking the Lord, and I knew that something was stirring my heart, I had an encounter with the Lord where as sure as I've ever experienced it, Jesus was in the car with me. R.T. Kendall and I were talking about this when he was at our church last year. We both had very similar encounters with the Lord, where the Lord, I, I didn't see the Lord, but he was there with me in the car. Time froze, and I heard the Lord speak to me, and he said, Lee, you're going to plant a praying and a worshiping church. And that became the blueprint, that became the mandate upon our lives And so that's exactly what we did. We moved to Kalamazoo, Michigan. Kalamazoo is a a university town. It's about 300,000 people. It's about 60% of the population have no spiritual affiliation. It's one of the most progressive, politically progressive and liberal cities in the Midwest per capita. And it's a university town and God called us there. And at 25, we didn't have any people, we didn't have any money, we didn't have any experience, we didn't have a building. We were prime candidates for failure. What we did have was we had a word from God to build a praying and a worshiping church. And so that's what we started with. And so the only place that we could begin having church in this small little corner of the county Kalamazoo County, a little town called Richland, Landon's been there, Heather's been there. It's a water tower, it's a blinking red light, it's a post office in a gas station that has a subway in it. How many know what I'm talking about? And and that's where God called us to start the church, Well, the only place that we could rent was the local high school cafetorium, which is a cafeteria and it's not quite an auditorium, it's just smashed together. And so we rented that. That was all that we could get. And the mascot of the school was the Blue Devils. And so right over the room that we rented was a sign that said, Welcome to the Devil's Den. And that's where we started Radiant Church. It's perfect. You ought to include that in all of your church growth manuals out in literally the middle of a cornfield, population of 1,400 people. And the Lord said, this is where you will start. And we started in a prayer meeting with 17 people. And we began to pray and believe God and knew that God wanted to do something miraculous out of a, a place that nobody would expect it. How many know that God loves to do significant things out of places of obscurity? He loves Bethlehem, doesn't he? He likes, to, he likes to pull things out of Nazareth. He will even use Richland, Michigan. And we know that because we've seen it and we've spent all of our years of ministry saying, God, we wanna be nothing but radically obedient to you because there's nothing in the natural that's gonna cause this to grow. It's only gonna be you. And so we've spent over 20 years studying patterns and pathways of previous revivals and movements, because just like Moses said, Lord, show us your glory, show us your way, show us your presence. That has been the heart cry. It's God, we want nothing more than your presence. My grandparents, who were the single most influential people in my life, grew up in the in the the 30s and the 40s, and they got married in 1947. They were Bible college students in the evenings at a church in Detroit, Michigan called Bethesda Missionary uh, Assembly, pastored by Ma Beal. And they were there in 1948 when the spirit of the living God moved in a way that became known as the latter rain outpouring. And they would tell me stories as a young Young boy growing up in their home, about what it was like to be in the midst of a revival. I went and I went into the very sanctuary that they experienced these stories in. I, I remember about eight years ago standing in the sanctuary looking up at the ceiling and realizing this is the very room that my grandfather told me about about being in Sunday morning or Sunday evening services where they would begin to sing and 45 minutes in the worship leader would tell all the musicians to be quiet and they would sit there for 45 minutes listening to the angelic choirs in the rafters singing and worshiping Jesus and everyone looking around and no one was singing. And he said... Lee, marked us. We cannot unknow what we've known. He told me about stories of people coming in wheelchairs and running out of the sanctuary. About literally fingers growing back and people who had lost their, their ability to speak after World War II when they came home from the PTS of the, of the war. They came back and God healed them in their emotions and restored their voices. And I remember as a little boy recognizing that that was supposed to be normal Christianity. It wrecked me for normal. And then my mom uh, remarried a, a wonderful young man who really was just a nominal Christian. And we went to United Methodist Church and I was a choir boy and an acolyte and lit the candles. But I remember thinking to myself, this can't be Christianity because of what my grandparents had told me. And here's what I realized is that when you've had a taste of the glory of God, it wrecks you for everything else. And so it set me on a course through my teen years and into my 20s of saying, God, show me your glory. This can't just be something that you did once in a history book, this has to be available. And I've got good news for you is that right now, currently around the world, whether you know it or not, we are living in the greatest demonstration of the glory of God on the face of the earth ever. We're living in the midst of the greatest outpouring, the greatest harvest, and the greatest revival the world has ever seen. I want you to think about this right now. That right now around the world, there are more Christians alive today than have ever lived collectively in church history. Tom Doyle, according to his book, Dreams and Visions, estimates that one-third of Muslims, 1.8 billion Muslims, one-third of them on the earth have had a eyewitness appearing or a dream of Jesus. We are living in a day when the fastest growing church in the world is in the People's Islamic Republic of Iran. The second fastest- growing churches in Afghanistan. Both nations where it is illegal to convert to Christ, if you were born a Muslim. Right now, daily across the world in global conversions, think about this. Latin America is seeing 35,000 people born again every single day. China is experiencing 28,000 people born again every single day. Indonesia, one million people a year. India, 85 million believers a year and over 150,000 new converts per month. 7,000 churches in Seoul, Korea, with 40% of the city of Seoul, Korea born again, and that didn't start until the year 1900. There are more conversions that have taken place in the past decade in Iran than in the last 1,000 years. Africa, has By the year 2050, there will be as many African Christians alive as there are total Christians alive right now on the entire planet. There are currently 700 million Pentecostal and charismatic believers globally alive on the planet right now. And considering that in 1901, there wasn't a thousand that could be measured that were known by missiologists. 700 million tongue speaking believers on the planet. Now, let me me tell you what that means. You're gonna love this. Let me tell you what that means. Mandarin is the most spoken language on the face of the earth. One billion people speak Mandarin. Second most spoken language is English. If 700 million people are speaking in tongues, that means that tongues is the third most spoken language on the planet. And by the year 2040, tongues, the language of heaven and angels, will be the single most spoken language on the planet. Come on, somebody. Jesus. That's what's happening around the world. But what in the world's happening in America? What's the difference between the global move of God and the American move of God? Well, there are flashpoints that are beginning to pop up But I can summarize the difference between what God is doing globally and what God is doing in America in one word. It's presence. It's presence, it's the supernatural. A.W. Tozer in his book, The Pursuit of God said this. He said, the presence and the manifestation of the presence are not the same. There can be one without the other. God is here when we are wholly unaware of it. He is manifest only when and as we are aware of his presence. On our part, there must be surrender to the Spirit of God for his work. It is to show us the Father and the Son. If we cooperate with him in loving obedience, God will manifest himself to us. And that manifestation will be the difference Between normal Christianity or the normal or nominal Christian life and a life radiant with the light of his face. One word is presence. You see, the global church is continuing the book of Acts and we have exchanged presence and power for pragmatism and practicality. We've made the great exchange. You see, they've built their movements around his presence, but much of what we have built in the American church has actually been built around his absence. We've had to fill the gap with things because we don't have the presence. Do you know that there was a time in Israel's history when there were two tabernacles? David built his tabernacle and he brought the ark when he restored the ark in the presence of God back to the center of Israel. He brought it and he put the ark under what became known as David's tabernacle and he established Levites and musicians to worship before the presence of God. Much of the Psalms that David wrote were actually prophetic songs of worship that David wrote on his notepad while he was in the tabernacle allowing the priest to minister to the presence of God and he was saturated in God's presence. But think about this, at the exact same moment that David had the presence of God under the tabernacle that he built, there was another tabernacle at Shiloh or in Gibeah and that was the tabernacle of Moses where the priests were going through the sacrificial system, were putting out the bread of the presence every single day, one loaf for each of the tribes of Israel. They were lighting the incense on the altar They were keeping the oil on the lampstand burning, but there was no presence. And so they were willing to go through the motions of sacerdotal worship without the presence of God. I don't know about you, but if I'm a priest up at, Moses' tabernacle, and I hear the presence of God is about five miles away down in Jerusalem. I'm packing my bags, baby, and I'm going down there and saying, I'm relocating to the tabernacle of David because I want to be where God's presence is. I'm not content to go through the motions. I want his presence, but that's exactly what we've done in the American church. We have church models that have been built around seekers instead of being built around his presence, We have church movements that have been built around celebrities instead of his presence. And we've devised church services around style and preference instead of his presence. We've striven to be culturally relevant, and without knowing it, we've become irrelevant. And we need to become kingdom relevant. Instead of making the Bible applicable to our everyday lives, we need to make our everyday lives applicable to the Bible. So what is God doing in America? I believe with all of my heart, we are living in a time of massive transition. It's a time of shifting. It's a time of reformation. It's a time of God and his fatherly correction, disciplining the church in the West in order to bring a course correction back to his presence. Listen, we've learned some incredible things. We've got great buildings, we've got great programs, we've got LED walls, we've got smoke machines, and some people are very critical of that, and I'm just like, have you read the description of the tabernacle? They had their own (laughs) smoke machine, it was called the incense altar. They had their own light show. It was candlesticks. They had tapestries and fabric, and it was all plated in gold and silver. So God's not against that. He's the master artist. But the problem is we've had all of those things to fill in the gap of his absence. And what we need is we need the marriage of that with the presence of God, and that's what this holy shift is about where God is regathering his people around his presence, listen, according to his order and his pattern. According to his order and his pattern. In Exodus chapter 25 and verse 40, God's speaking to Moses about building the tabernacle. And remember the tabernacle, the the tabernacle that God gave Moses to build became... God's earthly geographical location of his presence. It was his home address on earth. And it was in the midst of his people. He says, If you build it, I will come. And I will dwell in the midst of you. And in Exodus 25, as God has given Moses instruction on how to build, The ark or how to build the tabernacle to hold the ark of his presence, he says, and see to it, verse 40, see to it that you make them, talking about everything, that you make them after the pattern that I've given you for them, which is being shown you on the mountain. So we know that Moses goes up on the mountain and he spends 40 days in the presence of the Lord, in the very throne room of heaven. And on that mountain, as he's beholding the the throne of God and the angelic myriad that is before the throne, God shows him the pattern of his presence. For 40 days, heaven came down and sat on Mount Sinai. And Moses went up into it. Even the elders of Israel went up into it and they ate and they drank in the presence of the Lord. Can you imagine that? And Moses sees the presence of God. He sees the throne He sees the angels. He sees the order. And what God says is, I want my tabernacle to be an earthly mere reflection of what you've seen on the top of the mountain. Make sure that you build my earthly dwelling place to match the pattern of my heavenly dwelling place. There's a pattern and there's an order that God expects if we're going to build something that is presence driven. And right now, currently, God's confronting the patterns that have been man made, man centered, instead of presence centered, and God ordained. He's re breaking the bones of our structures that have developed wrong. Like a bone that hasn't been set correctly, and he's resetting them so that we can walk in strength, in unity, in the fullness of the stature of Christ as a mature man once again. We can't walk in the authority of Ephesians 4 until the bones that have formed wrong have been rebroken so that they can be healed and set in proper order. There's a pattern to the presence of God. There's a pattern to being present-centered people. And I believe that we can find the pattern for how God wants us today in the New Testament, in the era that I believe that Jesus is bringing his bride to maturity that's found in the pattern that he gave to Moses. Because Moses built a tabernacle, but it says that then God also gave him instructions about how the people of God were to be encamped around his presence. It says in Numbers chapter two, verse one, the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, the people of Israel shall camp each by his own standard or banner with the banners of their father's houses and they shall camp facing the tent of meeting on every side. So the people of Israel, all 12 tribes, gathered around God's presence in the tabernacle and there were four main tribes that were what were called the banner tribes that the other tribes camped under. And I believe that there's a, there's a mystery to the way that God had them in camp, that if we'll see the unveiling of it, it will help us see what it means to build presence-driven churches. So I want them to put this image up on the, on the screen here. This is the way that the children of Israel camped. Right there, you see the ark and the tabernacle. And these are the four banner tribes, the heads, if you will. On the east you have Judah, to the north you have Dan, to the west you have Ephraim, and to the south you have Reuben. And these four banners that they encamped around the presence of God under these names, I believe are the four banners, the four messages, the four priorities that presence-driven churches have got to embrace in this hour. So I want to walk through these four with you tonight. And I know this is strong meat, but listen, we're pastors, we're leaders in this house, right? And so we don't need chicken soup for the soul tonight. So I'm going to give you a little something more meatier than that. So here we go. What are the four banners? What does it mean to camp around the presence according to the banner? Well, first of all, to the east, they camped under Judah. And we all know that Judah means praise. In order to be people of his presence, we're going to have to reorder our worship around him and not us. I want to repeat that. We're going to have to reorder our worship around him and not us. In John 4, when Jesus is engaging in a conversation with the Samaritan woman at Jacob's well, He gives us an insight into what this means because immediately she wants to go into a debate about theology. Do we worship on this mountain? Do we worship in Jerusalem? And, you know, Jesus doesn't take the bait. He goes right for the heart. And he says, woman, the hour is coming and now is when those who worship the father are not gonna worship on this mountain or any other mountain. But then he goes on and he says this. He says, those who worship God must worship him in spirit and in truth for such worshipers is the father seeking. Is the father seeking? Did you catch that? God is looking for certain kinds of worshipers. In other words, God has preference when it comes to worship. But how many times... Have we shaped and been told that in order to grow our churches, you have to shape your worship, your music in the way that people prefer so when they come to your church, They like the music, it's their favorite song that they listened on, you know, K-pop or whatever. And they're just like, oh, I love that worship song. And that's new, that's on the top of the charts. And that's got a nice little beat to it. And so I like that song. And so we gotta do one fast song, two slow songs. You got 18 minutes, don't pray we got to have a guitar solo, this synth pad. We've got to wear skinny jeans and Chelsea boots and have at least three tattoos on our forearm and not use any spiritual language and sing it in a certain way at a certain tempo. And you want your first song at this tempo and you want to end like this and you want to end with a big swirl in a trash can and everybody's going to have an emotional response. And then that's church. And the whole time, God the Father's sitting back going, nobody asked me what I like. I'm glad you like it. I'm glad you're having a good time. But have you ever noticed how many worship songs we can sing that don't even have anything to do with Jesus? My son is six foot six, blonde hair, blue eyes, 28 years old, still single. So all of your ladies, his name's Jared, on Instagram, Jared Cummings. Slide up into his DMs. We're believing God for a wife. So but but uh, one, of his, one of his best friends is a Muslim. Uh, and one day he got in the car, his friend's name is Faisal. He got into the car with his buddy Faisal. And Faisal's listening to a very popular worship song. If I named it, you would know it. And he's like singing it. And he's, he says, what are you doing? He's like, man, I love this song. It just speaks to me. And he's like, you know, that's a Christian worship song, right? And he goes, what? What? He goes, you're kidding me. There was nothing in the song that indicated anything about Jesus. But it's one of the most popular worship songs. And it's it's a great song. But it just reminds me of how out of alignment we've allowed our worship to get. I mean, I don't get them anymore because they filter them for me just so I have my peace of mind, but we used to get emails all the time. It's like, I don't understand why you sing that song. Or where's the hymns? And why, do, why is there gotta be so much drums? And, you know, why electric guitars? And, you know, it just, uh, complaints about the worship song. How, how come we don't do these types of thong- songs? And our answer was always the same, is our, our worship pastor, who's been with, was with me for 17 years, would always say, During the week, I pray and ask God what songs he wants to hear. And then that's what we do. Because when you create a consumer preference worship model, then what we are teaching people is self-worship instead of the sacrifice of praise. And if we're going to be people camped around his presence, we've got to come back to Judah, which is praise. And reorient our worship around his presence. Coming back even to the simplicity of thanksgiving and honor. And recognizing that worship actually ushers in his kingdom presence. Psalm 22 says that he's enthroned on the praises of Israel, of Zion. Which, that's more than poetry, guys. Literally, we're establishing a throne in the center of our corporate gathering in which Jesus is enthroned. And when the king is in the room, the kingdom comes. We need his kingdom. I don't know about you, but we need King Jesus to exert his scepter over the broken bodies that are in the room. We need Jesus to extend his kingdom scepter over the lost and to claim them because the lamb is worthy to receive the rewards of his suffering. We need Jesus to exert his scepter over our city, over our marriages, over our prodigals. And that only happens when we establish a throne for his presence. And worship shifts environments. We can't treat worship like some sort of incantation or utilitarian just warm-up. We're created to step into the role of priesthood and to worship him. This is what it means to be people of his presence. Number two is Dan to the north, if they'll put that back up, that that uh, diagram of the tabernacle back up, is Dan. And what what does Dan mean? Dan, his name literally means to discern or to contend. To discern or contend. Jude, in his small little book, the half-brother of Jesus, says this, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. To contend, if we're gonna be people of his presence, we're also going to have to be those that contend for the faith in the midst of a generation in which the word of God more than ever is under assault. We've got, to, If we're gonna be people of his presence, then we gotta be people of his word. Can I just tell you, we have far too often divorced the spirit of God from the word of God. It's not polar opposites. People ask, are you a word church or are you a spirit church? And I'm like, yes. And they're just like, which one? I'm like, can I just tell you the same Holy Spirit that baptized me in the spirit and gives me the gifts of the spirit is the same Holy Spirit that moved on men of God and wrote the scriptures. And I got to be a word man. It's amazing to me how much the voice of the Holy Spirit in here sounds like the writing of the Holy Spirit in here. Half the time, the reason why pastors can't hear the voice of God is they haven't downloaded enough of God's word into their heart to be able to hear the voice of God. I was sitting in a coffee shop in our city, and by the way, our city has a major university. super, it's crazy. And so I knew this guy who sat down next to me. He was a professor of sociology and, and philosophy, and I knew who he was. He didn't know who I was. And oftentimes, I'll go to the coffee shop to to study and I do it intentionally because I wanna be out in public. And we're kind of a flashpoint in our city and, and I like that. And so I was sitting there and every time I go, I bring my biggest Bible. I call it my 50 pound heathen choker. And so I bring that Bible and I will sit it out because it's a conversation piece. This guy sat next to me. He's a philosophy and sociology professor and I had my earphones in and I don't typically listen to music when I study. I just do it so nobody talks to me. <laughs> None of you do that. I know that, right? So I was sitting there and I heard him go, <coughs> when he looked at my Bible. So I pulled my earphone out and I said, I said, what are you reading? Because he was reading something. He goes, oh, I'm reading, uh, I'm reading some uh, Tao on uh, ancest- uh, Taoist philosophy of ancestral lineage or something like that. And he goes, well, what are you reading? I said, oh, it's the Bible. He goes, do you really believe that thing? And I said, yeah, I believe it from Genesis all the way to maps. I believe it all. And, <laughs> and actually mine says genuine leather on the back. I believe that too. And we began to engage in a conversation he said, well, congratulations. You're the first Christian that I know that when I've seen him reading a Bible and I ask him, do you really believe that? You've not made excuses. And he says, you'd be surprised. I've even asked pastors. And when I ask him, do you believe that? They begin to give me all kinds of qualifications. And I said, no, you're not gonna find that with me. I believe that. It's hidden in my heart. It has changed my life. It has transformed me. <laughs> The B-I-B-L-E, yes, that's the book for me. I stand alone on the word of God, the B-I-B-L-E. I still believe it. We've got to be those that contend for the faith that was once and for all delivered unto the saints. And you can't do that if you don't have the word deep on the inside of you. Here's the problem with so many of us. We're more discipled by culture than scripture. We've got a generation that's been discipled by TikTok theologians. It's because their pastors aren't in the pulpit dealing with the issues of the day. They're feeding them chicken soup for the soul. They're just kind of giving them a little spiritual amnesia. And our churches have been turned into Christian hospices where we just give enough painkiller to the saints so that they don't feel the pain as they slowly slip away. And we haven't taught people how to contend for the faith. We're not teaching the word of God. We got an entire generation that's deconstructing, not because of the weakness of the gospel, but because of the weakness in the pulpit. And we need to have the word of God flowing out of us and we've got to be prepared to give a defense for the faith. And part of that is addressing issues. This is what it means to be presence-driven people. It's not just, oh, I love the presence of God. Yeah, I love the presence of God. I'm in prayer meetings morning, noon, and night. We have a prayer center at the heart of our city that God helped us establish about four or five years ago. I love the prayer meeting, but I love getting in the word of God And when I stand in the pulpit, I recognize, and you're going to have to recognize that there is a massive harvest generation that is just waiting for somebody to stand up and to contend for the faith. My experience has been that so many, even pastors and leaders, are deconstructing and backsliding in the faith. And it's because they've rejected the presence Because you see, you can't bring sin into the presence of God. You can't bring compromise into the presence of God. When you bring it to the cross, you're given an ultimatum. You either lay it at the feet of Jesus, and you die to yourself daily, and you... Galatians 2.20, where I am crucified with Christ and it's no longer I who live, but Christ Jesus who lives in me and the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You either do that or you pack it up and you begin to lean into the spirit of this age that will come and it will comfort you, it will seduce you, it will justify to you why you can go ahead and be culturally adjacent instead of kingdom connected. Paul said, In the last days, many are going to depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of demons. And we're seeing it. Well, you know, I, literally, one of my mentors who taught me how to build my church today, if you ask him, Is the Bible the inspired word of God? He'll say, Well, parts of it. And it's amazing how the parts you think are God are always the parts that affirm the way you're living. We've got to check ourselves. And we've got to be willing to contend for the faith. This is what it means to be people of his presence. The third one is Ephraim. They camped under the banner of Ephraim around the presence of God. And the name Ephraim means fruitfulness, fruitfulness. Jesus said, you have not chosen me, but I've chosen you. That you might bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. You see, before I can reap a harvest in the world, there must be a harvest of righteousness that is evident in the church. Personal fruit and maturity is so important to us. We oftentimes talk about the great commission, which Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel. But we don't often talk about the great omission which is the second part of it when he said, teach them to observe all things that I've commanded you. This is how fruitfulness is developed. Fruitfulness is the result of intentional discipleship. And if we're gonna be presence people, we're also going to have to respond to Jesus's mandate to make disciples and to teach people and to bring them to a place of maturity so that they can bear fruit. This is ultimately what Jesus has called us to, to bear fruit. Think about where you were when you met Jesus, and think about where you are today. Hopefully there's more fruit in your life than there was at that day. I led a man to the, to the Lord uh, in the front of our church about six months ago. Just a rough, rough guy came in, broken. And gave an altar call, and he responded to the altar call and led him to the Lord. I, I ran into him about three or four weeks ago. Last time I was uh, I was preaching in January, and he came up to me and uh, I said, "How you doing? I'm so glad to see you. You're you're here." And he's like, "Yeah, I'm getting baptized next week." And I said, "Man, I'm so excited you're getting baptized." I said, "How's it going? Are you growing? You, you in the Word?" And he's like, "Man, I'm reading the Bible like..." And then he just swears. He just <laughs> drops. He just drops like. Innocently, and he says, I'm reading the Bible like a mm, mm. it was like an episode out of cops. It was like <laughs> beep, 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 beep. I just looked at him and I was like, Praise God. Praise God. Keep going, keep going. I'm okay with that. Because in 10 years he's not gonna be there. At least he better not be there. <laughs> We raised 3 kids. I loved our kids. I changed diapers. I did it all. But can I tell you? I'm not looking forward. I'm not looking for my 30-year-old daughter to ask me to change her diaper anymore. It's like it's like you grow up and you become a parent and you become a fully functional mature human being. That's the goal of every parent and that's the goal that God has for every believer. And that's what he's called us to be as church leaders is to help people step into fruitfulness. But unfortunately, oftentimes, when there isn't fruit, it's because something has gone wrong. We end up with bad fruit. And bad fruit, by an agricultural definition, is defined as deformed and seedless fruit. Seedless fruit. We've all had like seedless watermelons, seedless grapes. And it's easy to eat, but it doesn't reproduce. Reproduce. And one of the defects that we have in the American church is we've got bad fruit. We've got fruit, but we've got bad fruit because it doesn't reproduce. Let me let me paint a picture for you. In the last 20 years, missiologists say that the average Christian that 25, 30 years ago used to witness to people and lead people to Christ. The amount of people who personally witness and make disciples of other people individually in our churches has dropped by 70% in the last 20 years. Because what in our attractional model, in our seeker-sensitive model, we've convinced an entire generation that evangelism is inviting people to church to hear the pastor preach and to give the altar call to lead them to the Lord. And then once they respond to an altar, and I love altar calls, But once they respond to the altar call, then the church has to develop a program to disciple their people. And nobody out there is discipling anybody. So their fruit isn't developing because there's some fruit in the kingdom of God that will only grow out of our lives when we're investing in discipling others. And so listen, this isn't enough. There are some people that are out there in the world that you and I as pastors will never reach. We have to train our people to have fruit in their lives that has a seed in it so that when they go out there and somebody tastes and see their life, the seed gets in them and it reproduces and it multiplies. What would happen in our churches if people had so encountered the Lord and have been so mentored and become fruitful that Sundays just becomes a celebration of what God has done Monday through Saturday out in the marketplace? And we just... We just say if you got saved this last week, stand up. We want to celebrate. And everybody stands up. What if our baptism services? We just said it's time to get baptized. If you led somebody to the Lord, you come down to help us to baptize them. Well, I'm not a priest. Well, the Bible says you are. But since you didn't read it, you didn't know that. Ugh. I had a Celsius before I preached, so. Okay, number four, people of his presence. It's Reuben. It's Reuben. Reuben means, behold, a son. The message of his presence is sonship. The message of the hour right now over God's church is the message of sonship. See a son. Now when I say that, if you're a woman, you might have a temptation to say, well, what about daughters? And I I get it. We oftentimes will sing about sons and daughters of God, but you need to understand something that if you're a man and you're a Christian, you are referred to as the bride of Christ. And we don't say the groom. But if you are a woman, you also are viewed by the father as a son. And why that's important is because in biblical context, a son was the inheritor of all things that the father had. It was the son that received the blessing. It was the son that received the inheritance. It was the son who was the carrier of the family, DNA. It was the son who would take over the family business. It was the son who partnered with the father. Now, we obviously in our culture, we know that God loves sons and daughters, but there's something unique about the message of sonship. For even Women in the body of Christ that we need to understand because there's some unique revelation about sonship that's connected to the heart of the Father. See, God doesn't reveal himself as just Almighty God, creator of the universe. God doesn't reveal himself as the CEO of the global religious organization called the church. Jesus, when he taught his disciples to pray, started right where his relationship was deeply rooted. And he said, pray like this, our father. Do you know how radical that is? To teach somebody, yes, God's almighty. Yes, God's creator. Yes, he's the king of the universe. Yes, he's El Shaddai. Yes, he's Adonai. Yes, he's Yahweh. Yes, he's all of these compound. Covenant names, and I appreciate all of them. But he, that is his transcendence. But in Jesus, we receive the invitation into sonship. Not just servanthood, but sonship. And so many of us, I see it in my church, I see it in pastors and leaders, We're striving to get the Father's approval because we see ourselves as servants in the house and not sons in the house. And a servant will serve to gain approval, to gain promotion, but it will also create an attitude of competition and insecurity to where we never quite feel accepted. We never feel like we have a place This is an hour where God wants to convince his church. It's it's like, listen, his presence, when we talk about his presence, we're not talking about an energy force. We're not talking about some ethereal smoke that enters into the room. We're talking about a person. A person who reveals himself as our father. John 1 says, to as many as received him, to them he gave the right to be called sons of God. 1 John chapter 3 says, behold, what manner of love is this that we might be called the children of God? Jesus in John 5.19 says, I only do that which I see the Father doing. God wants to convince us of who he is because once he can convince us of who he is, we'll have a clearer understanding about who we are. Romans 8 says that all of creation is waiting for the manifestation of the sons of God. You know what our culture is waiting for right now? It's waiting for the church to shift from a servant mentality to a son mentality. Because a son knows his place. A son knows his inheritance. A son knows the voice of his father. A son has confidence. You know, my son, I mentioned him, even now he's 28, he lives on his own but he doesn't ring the doorbell when he comes to my house. (laughs) Today I was here recording some podcasts and I got a text from him in the middle of it. And he's like, dad, can I use your golf clubs? And he's my son, he knows. It's like, yes, just put them back. And he's like, great. And I'm just like, please don't break them once you hit a bad shot. You know, they're really expensive, but of course you can use it. He doesn't ring the doorbell. He comes into my house, he throws open the cupboards and he eats everything. I'll come home from the office and he's leaving. He's like, bye, dad. I'm like, what do you got? And he's like, I cleared out your freezer. He's got steaks in there. He's got chicken in there. I'm like, I bought that. And he's like, thank you. This is what a son does. A son has confidence. But if my neighbor came over, if I came home and my neighbor's in my kitchen with a bag of my steaks, And my golf club slung over his shoulder. And he's like, thank you for paying for this. I mean, I'm calling the cops. (laughs) There's a difference how we relate to sons. Because there's a holy confidence that we have in our father. Can I just tell you that one of the greatest needs of the hour in which you and I find ourselves doing ministry and partnering with the Lord is a generation that has a cultural, cultural famine for fathers. and a generation that doesn't even understand the concept of what a father is supposed to be. My dad left when I was nine months old. He was a minor league baseball player, threw his rotator cuff out, he was 20 years old, got addicted to zone, which led to heroin. One day he packed his bags and he left me and my mom living in the inner city of Detroit. And my grandparents took us in And my grandfather became a dad to me until my mom remarried, a stepdad, who was a great provider, but he was emotionally unavailable. So I had a biological father who I didn't see until I was about six years old, and even then he was into the new age, and he was addicted to different drugs, and he was untrustworthy. He would leave me on the front steps of my house waiting for him to pick me up, and I would wait there for hours and then he wouldn't show up. And even when he did take me to his house, as a six, seven-year-old boy, I was exposed to pornography in a way that no child should ever be exposed to it. He was an undependable, untrustworthy father. And then I had an emotionally unavailable stepfather who allowed me to live in the house, but because I didn't have his last name, I really wasn't a son. And I had half brothers, but I had half the heart. And then I had a grandfather who showed me Jesus and introduced me to the ultimate father, my heavenly father who saved me and called me when I was 12 years old and throughout my teen years, God began to unwind and heal all the father wounds that I had in my heart. And God himself began to reveal himself as my father, that what my earthly father could not provide, my heavenly father had selected and called me and put his mark upon my life. My high school counselor said, you've defied all of the statistics. And it was only by the grace of God. And I look at a generation right now where 70%, 70% of gen alpha is either living in a home without a father or with a negligent father or a disconnected emotionally father. The message of sonship is so significant right now. God, God's building a family. And can I tell you, it's not just for people in our churches. It's for pastors. Because even in churches, especially in the independent charismatic world, which I'm a part of, we have an orphan spirit. Where we're doing our own thing, but we're not connected to spiritual fathers. 1 Corinthians chapter 4.15, Paul says, For though you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet you do not have many fathers. We're part of all kinds of organizations. We're part of even denominations. And we might have our name on mailing lists and in networks and all kinds of things like this, but yet we keep fathers and mentors, spiritual mothers and fathers at an arm's length because what we've learned in our orphan spirit is how to emotionally disconnect. And I believe that things like this pur- purpose-driven or, or a presence-driven, not purpose-driven, a presence-driven network that you guys are here, this is what God is doing in this hour. He's gathering his people in families. God's presence and his government is demonstrated through families and families. The Bible says that God has named every family according to the name of our father. It's by that father that all the other families of the earth are named. It's in the context of families, both natural families and spiritual families, that we grow in sonship. And that's what God is doing right now, a new wineskin. He's gathering churches, not just around physical or even corporate structures and organizations, but he's building us around families where there's fathers and there's mothers and we're accepted as sons and we're accepted as daughters and there's brothers and there's sisters and there's uncles and there's aunts. And we're sitting down at the table together. And how many know brothers and sisters can fight? And moms and dads can discipline. I remember my dad would come, my stepdad would come home at six o'clock. The grandfather clock would hit six. Little House on the Prairie would play on the TV. The headlights would come through the window and I knew I was in trouble. Because when dad came home, there was gonna be discipline. I longed for the day that when I saw the headlights come through the window, that my heart would not fear because I wanted my kids, when they grew up, when they saw the headlights come through the windows, that they ran to the door because dad was going to greet them, dad was going to embrace them. That's what God wants to do in this hour in churches. God wants to win a prodigal generation to Himself. It's not just a prodigal generation. There's actually a generation. Think about Luke 15 when it says the prodigal son, when he came to his senses, said I had it better at my father's house and my servant, my dad's servants have it better. So I'll go there and I'll just, I know the way back home to father's house. But can I tell you, there's actually a generation that you and I are ministering to who have never been to the father's house. So even when they do come to their senses, they don't know where to go. We've got to create homes and families and families of churches so that when we get what God has promised and we prayed for, which is a harvest of millions of souls brought into the kingdom of God, we know what to do with them. We've got to know the Father so that we can become fathers. We've got to know the Father's house so that we can invite them in and have a place at the table for them apostolic fathers and families are part of the reordering of God's people that will lead to awakening. This is what it means to be a people of his presence. And I want the worship team that they would come out and everyone, would you stand with me in the presence of the Lord? I I just, I sense Jesus in this place. I sense the father is here and because he wants to mark a people for his presence. Wants to mark leaders of churches that have such holy confidence in who God is that they won't settle for anything less than his presence. Like Moses. Moses said to the Lord, God, if you don't go with us, then we don't want to go. Think about that desperation. Moses was willing to live in the wilderness with God's presence over going into the promised land without it. God, if your presence doesn't go with us, we don't want to go. 1996, we put the flag in the ground. And we said, this is where you've called us. This is where we'll stay. And his presence has made its home in the midst of our spiritual family. And I can say 27, 28 years later, looking back on the journey, when people ask me, what's the secret sauce It's not the celebrity. It's not the gifts. It's not the buildings. It's not the money. It's his presence. We've said no to a thousand things so we can say yes to this one thing. God, your presence at all costs. At all costs. We will say no to a thousand things, God. A thousand good things, a thousand great things. And we're not gonna leave this place until we're marked by your presence. Show us your glory, God. God would just you show your glory in this most inglorious place. Wherever it is that God's assigned you, He's called you. I want you to know tonight it's not you're not limited by the geography. You're not limited by by the resources. You're not limited by the amount of people. You're not limited by the staff people you don't have. The same Jesus who's here tonight in mercy culture is the same Jesus who will show up in any location, in any city when he can find people who've said yes to his presence and said, God, show us your glory. He can do it in a cornfield in Kalamazoo. He can do it wherever you are, I promise you. Disney can't replicate the presence of God. Marvel can't replicate the presence of God. It's the advantage that we have, and it's time that we put all of our chips to the center of the table and say, God, mark us. We want to be people with your presence at the center of all that we do. And God, we're willing to contend God, we're willing to reorient our worship around your presence. God, we're willing to disciple unto fruitfulness. And God, we're embracing sonship. Whatever it is that you wanna reorient in our life, God, we, we say yes, because we want your presence. And tonight I know all across this room, the Holy Spirit, not only is he wanting to mark people, but he's highlighting as a father does areas of where fear and insecurity has actually motivated and limited you as a leader. And I know this because it's happened in my life. And it's it's in, probably it's in one of these four areas. It's in like, well, I'm nervous. I'm nervous about structuring our service in a certain way because I don't want to lose what we currently have. Or I, I don't I don't know how to make disciples. I don't uh, God, I don't have the resources, or maybe it's your own insecurity as a leader. You just—it's like God, I I don't understand what it is to be a son. I don't know how to contend. There's issues I don't want to touch. I don't want to go deep into these things. But the Holy Spirit right now, He's highlighting some things in your heart, and He's saying, "Do you want my glory? Do you want my kabod? Do you want my weightiness?" You see, the, the way of man is we measure success by numbers, but heaven measures success by weight. Man counts, God weighs. And if we're looking through the wrong metric and we just think numbers is success, then I can give you a 1,000 packing peanuts and set it next to four rocks but when the wind blows and the packing peanuts are gone and the rocks are still there and you realize it has to do with weight and not numbers, all of a sudden your priorities shift. We need to get rid of the lies. Expel the lies of fear in us as leaders. And we need to be able to say like Moses said, God, show us your glory above all things, God. I want to see your goodness. I want to know your ways, God. I want to know your ways. God, I want you to speak to me face to face like a friend. I know the psalmist said that you showed Israel your works, but Moses knew your ways. God, I would trade knowing all of your works just so I could know your ways. God, I want to know your heart more than I want to see what your hand can do. I want to know what moves you. I want to know what you say. I want to know what you want to do. And God, I'm willing to spend it all just to have your presence. Tonight, if there's an area that the Holy Spirit is highlighting for you to surrender, that you're willing to exchange tonight, to be marked as a person, a people of his presence, I want you to get out of your seat and I want you to come forward tonight because there's gonna be an impartation. God's about to mark some leaders in churches in a way that maybe you've never experienced before. Tonight, there's a weight that's about to be dropped on the shoulders of some people as we let go of some of the yokes and some of the burdens that we came into this conference with. God, show us your glory. Show us your glory, God. Jesus. Show us your glory. Come. Lord, I'm praying for weight of glory tonight. Weight of glory to come and to rest and to mantle your people tonight these leaders father i'm praying for a download of sonship that the insecurities and the fears and the brokenness in their heart that's been driving them the selfish ambition god we just dump it out and we say father fill us up with the voice that says this is my son in whom i am well pleased sons and daughters of the living God father would you put a glory in a weight father I'm praying for fruitfulness for the seeds that are locked on the inside of them to begin to bear fruit not to be locked away not to lie dormant any longer but let there be fruit 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 because we're planted in the soil of your presence God Lord, I'm praying that you would raise up some prophetic reformers in this room that are contenders of the faith. Young lions, God, that you're putting a fire in their bones like Jeremiah. That you're raising up reformers, those who are going to nail their theses to the door of Wittenberg, the door of their generation. Raise up some TikTok defenders of the faith. God, I'm praying you'd raise up some fire-throwing preachers, worship leaders that will bring the presence of God, bring the fragrance of heaven into every room that they step into. Father, your glory, God, your glory, God, Lord I'm praying for a weight of authority as we begin to exchange the authority of hell for the authority of heaven manipulation and witchcraft control we loose it right now in the name of Jesus we lay it aside we repent we give it to you God those secret places those secret sins that we've allowed the enemy to convince us that they're not much there's no big deal they're the little foxes that spoil the vine God we're saying we don't want it we want your glory God more than silver more than gold more than fame we want your glory God your glory God we want to be people marked our generation marked by the glory by the weight of your presence on our churches on our families generational blessing God I'm praying for literal children of these leaders and these pastors they're not going to be prodigals that walk away from the faith they're not going to be those who are jaded and cynical because they've encountered the cloud of your glory because they know you show us your glory show us your glory Come on, cry out to Him for His glory. Say, God, I exchange it all for Your glory.